This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's take some time to ask God's direction and guidance upon our study of his word today. Father, we are so thankful we have your word. The testimony of your word is that it is your word. It was always in your mind, in your thinking throughout all of eternity, and that it is your revelation to us of who you are, who we are, what our problems are, and what your solution is. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. And, Father, we are so grateful because there is no way that we could ever do anything as corrupt, fallen, spiritually dead people to ever, ever gain your approval. But Christ did it, and when we trust in him, you give us his righteousness on which basis we are saved. And we rejoice in that. And we rejoice, too, that you have put us by the Holy Spirit into this new entity called the church, the body of Christ, and that it gives us new new blessings never, never before had by any believer. It gives us a new mission. It gives us a new purpose, a new identity. It gives us new assets. And so rarely are these things taught uh, this, in these times that we need to take time to thoroughly understand what it is that you have revealed to us about the church, what it is and its purpose. So open our, the eyes of our soul to this magnificent truth as we begin this study related to what is covered in Ephesians 4. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you hang around Christians of other denominations or churches or institutions for very long, you often hear very different kinds of statements about the church. Sometimes you have people making comments, talking about someone. They'll say, well, they could just really get straightened out if they would just be in church or if they would just go to church. I heard that frequently from older folks in my first congregation. Others will say, well, I like my church because it reaffirms uh, my life. It uh, gives me confidence. 
uh, in life, and because of that, I can uh, I can do better in life. It reinforces my identity. Or others may say, well, I like my church because of the great fellowship. We have this ministry for older people, that ministry for young marriage, this people, the ministry for kids, that ministry for, for the youth. And that's what I get out of church. Each of these statements reflect very different but extremely common beliefs and statements which reflect the popular views of what church is and what church is all about. Unfortunately, the beliefs that undergird each one of those statements are not biblical, for none of those are the values or the priorities that the Bible places upon what church is and why we are to be involved in a local church. So this morning, what we're going to do as we prepare to go into this next section, starting with verse 11, is to look at the topic of what does the Bible uh, teach about church. And so this morning, we will focus on answering this question from the Scripture, just what is the church? It's a common phrase, a common term. You see all kinds of expressions of it. You can drive up and down some of the streets uh, back in the neighborhoods behind us, go over to Long Point, see all kinds of different flavors of churches. You can go up and down I-10 and see different flavors of churches. You can go to different congregations and see all kinds of different things, and it makes you wonder, are these people all reading the same book? <laughs> are these people all studying the same Bible? Because their expressions not only are vastly different, they are contradictory. And they all call themselves Christians. And I have quoted several times in the past couple of months a statement or a book written by J. Gresham Machen, one of the great defenders of the faith early in the 20th century. He was, at that time, he was a professor of Greek and theology at Princeton Theological Seminary just before Princeton went liberal. And so he wrote a uh, outstanding book called Christianity and Liberalism, in which he said that liberal Christianity is not another form of Christianity, which is what liberal theologians claim. He said it is another religion altogether. It is not based on what the Bible says. Their view of God is not the biblical view of God. Their view of Jesus is not the biblical view of Jesus. Their view of sin is not the biblical view of sin. And their view of salvation is not the biblical view of salvation. So how can it be Christian in any way, shape, or form? And that's what we find also in many of the churches that we face today. And it is a sad thing that because baby believers, by the very nature of the fact that they are babies in terms of their understanding of Scripture, can easily be attracted by, um, you know, by, by all of the entertainment and all of the other things which are uh, nothing more than just fluff. They don't learn the Bible. They don't learn what the Bible teaches about God, and yet it is God's Word that again and again is said to be the source of power in our life, the basis for our Christian growth, and that as as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word that we may grow by it. 
We don't grow from singing. We don't grow from fellowship. We don't grow from all of the different programs that churches have that attract people, that make them more like a country club than the church of Jesus Christ. We grow from the Word of God. It is the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God to produce maturity in the child of God as he develops the image of God in his life, the image of Christ. So just to give us that overview again of what we see in these, um, in these six verses or five verses at the opening of this next section, Paul writes, and he himself, that is Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. There's a lot we need to discuss in that verse. But the reason he gives these gifted people to the church is for the purpose of equipping the saints, the word that refers to believers who are set apart to God by virtue of their salvation and being in Christ for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that is the maturing, the growing up, the strengthening of the body of Christ, which is the church, until we all come to the unity of the faith. Notice there are not many faiths within Christianity. There is one, and this is reflecting a doctrinal uh, basis here. There is one true body of truth, of doctrine, of teaching, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that for the purpose that we won't be children anymore. And a child is characterized by being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But We are to be speaking the truth in love, may it grow up in all the things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth for the body, for the edifying of itself in love. We are to be involved, our purpose is to be involved in spiritual growth and maturity And it only comes the way God planned it and God revealed it. Now, when we look at this this section, these verses, one thing we ought to note is it's one sentence in the Greek. It's another one of the eight long sentences that Paul writes uh, in the Greek. And so we have to break it down. It is complex. When we look at it, though... We go back to those first four verses in the English, and he himself gave. That is your foundational clause for this sentence. You have the subject, which is he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the main verb, which is give, to give. He gave, past tense. Christ gave. The rest of this section, the six verses, all relate to what Christ gave, the purpose for which he gave these gifted people, and the that is related to spiritual growth and maturity and what that 
involves. So it is a lengthy sentence, but it involves all of those things. Second thing that we need to observe here is that this is related to the fact that first Christ had to be crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God the Father before he could do this. So it's never happened before in human history. It begins after the session, the seating of Christ at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The reason that Jesus gave these gifts is stated in verse uh, 15, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, who is Christ. Now, we have seen a similar statement introducing the body of Christ to us in this epistle, and that is back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, in that introductory uh, chapter that brings into bear the focus on all the blessings that God gave us, and that goes down to about verse 18, and then after that to 20. Three, it focuses on a prayer of thanks to God for what he has done. And in verse 22, reminds us that he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is Christ, the Son of God. He put all things under his feet and gave him, gave Christ for a purpose, to be head over all things to the church. Now, that introduces us to a very important concept, and that is just what is this church? What is the relationship of Christ to the church? What does this mean that he is the head of the church? Does that mean he's the source? Does that mean he's the authority? These are the issues that are often debated in modern times. So we need to look at the context there. Starting in verse 20, we're told which he worked, that is what God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this is why we spent a good deal of time going through the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ was in order to get a good grasp on what is uh, taking place now. And that he's seated in the heavenly places far above all principality and power. Now, those are terms that are usually refer to the the hierarchy of authority among the angels. You have two categories of angels. You have the elect angels or the holy angels, those who were always obedient to God. And then at some time in eternity past, one of the angels, one of the most significant angels, and endowed with great abilities and one of the most beautiful and intelligent of all of the angels or the most intelligent and beautiful was one that we call Lucifer, that it comes from a Latin uh, word that was translated into the Vulgate, but his name in the Hebrew is Halel bin Shahar, which is uh, the bright star son of the morning and uh, not doesn't mean the same thing as as Lucifer. But we're told that he enticed or deceived a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. 
And so there's this cosmic conflict, this revolt, this uh, takes place in the heavenlies, and that human history is related to that because it is the outworking of uh, various challenges that were thrown towards God in terms of his love and his righteousness and his justice. And Satan is questioning how can a righteous, holy, loving just God send his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire. Because remember, Jesus stated in Matthew 25, 41, that the lake of fire has already been created for the devil and his angels. So why aren't they there? That's an important question. If they have been tried and found guilty and sentenced to the lake of fire, why aren't they there? And this is not stated in Scripture, but it is a theological deduction from what is there, is that apparently Satan challenged the verdict and and the penalty. How can a loving God, how can you be righteous and just and send your creatures to the lake of fire for eternity? And God is saying, okay, I'm going to give you a demonstration of why disobedience to me is so so horrible and deserves such a punishment. And so human history is a development of that. And if for in human history, we see that sin is not simply a willful act, but that every willful act in disobedience to God has incredible consequences. We all know that ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. But a a sin has incredible consequences that go far beyond its apparent uh, simpleness. For example, it is the eating of a piece of fruit, something we may have done this morning, something we've certainly probably done sometime in the last week. But it was the simple act of eating a piece of fruit that is what led to the corruption of the human race. All that we see around us, famine, war, uh, financial and economic woes and loss, all of the conflicts, all of the uh, uh, interracial conflicts, all of the wars between religious groups, all of the wars uh, brought on by tyrants and totalitarian governments, All of the horrible things that we see are all the result of just a simple act of disobedience exemplified in eating a piece of fruit. God is demonstrating that to disobey him brings horrible, horrific consequences that, uh, in fact, reverberated throughout all of the physical reality of the universe that he created. And so... In redeeming the universe and redeeming his creatures, God has a plan. A lot of people say, well, why did he do it this way? Well, we can trust him because he's omniscient. He knew all of the options. He knew all of the possibilities. He knew everything and knows everything there is to know. There never is anything he can learn that he doesn't already know because he, in his uh, infinitude and his eternality, God knows everything what could be, what would be, what should be, what might have been. He knows it all. And this is that which is necessary in order to resolve the horrible 
results of sin. And so Christ went to the cross. He died there. He paid the penalty for sin. And now he is elevated to the right hand of the Father and head over all things. He is elevated above the fallen angels. He's elevated above the holy angels in a position of authority. But he is, as we studied, he is seated there at the right hand, waiting for that time when the Father will uh, tell him it's the right time and give him the kingdom, and then he will come to the earth to establish his rule upon the earth. And that will not happen for at least another seven years because the seven years of the tribulation will intervene between this dispensation and the next. So what we've seen is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, a position of honor, a position of respect, Uh, Bathsheba, who was the mother of Solomon, was given the privilege of sitting at his right hand. We know that in the ancient world, this is a position of respect, authority, and power. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father until the end of this church age. Until then, he is in that position functioning as our high priest and as our advocate before the Father. These are all things we studied back in November and December. So in his position, he is over all of the angelic creatures, including the fallen angels, and he is over the church. In Colossians 2.10, he is specifically stated to be the head of all principality and power. We have to understand what that word head means. Point number three, we see that Christ is the head of the church. And that is stated also in Ephesians 4.15, in Ephesians 5.23, and in Colossians 1.18. This means he is the authority over the church. It does not mean he is the source. He is the authority over the church. He is our head. He is our. He is the one in charge. The head is where our brain is located. The brain rules the body, and that is the image, the analogy that is made. Christ is the head. He rules over his body. We're called the body of Christ, and that is a term of great honor that we are Christ's body. He was physically on the earth at the first coming. He came to the earth so that he could reveal God to man. And we, as John says in John 1, perceived his glory, the only begotten of the Father. No one had seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten revealed him to us. And then with the ascension, the body of Christ, the physical resurrected body of Christ, ascended to heaven. And it is replaced now by the church, which is the body of Christ. That gives us an understanding of our identity because we are part of that body and we are in Christ. So the church is further defined as his body, and there are a number of references there, and I'll leave the slide on if you're writing down some of the notes, but Romans 7, 14, Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, and especially 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27 is a significant passage talking about 
the body of Christ. The word is used, the, the word soma for body is used in almost every verse. I think it's every verse from 12 to 27. Ephesians 4.4, 4, Ephesians 4.12 and, 6, and 16, Ephesians 5.30, Colossians 1.18 and 24, Colossians 2.19 and 29, and Colossians 3.15 and Hebrews 13.3 are all passages that refer to the church as the body of Christ. We are his body. So he is the head of the body. We are his body. And when we come to our passage, it has the purpose of informing us about the fact that he as the head has given gifts to men. He has given gifts of gifted people, gifted leaders to the church for the purpose of training, teaching, equipping the individual believers in Christ so that they may become effective in serving Christ in ministry during their life. That's what God ordained to be the purpose and the function of the local church. The local church is not for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers walk in these doors now and then, and we don't know whether they are an unbeliever or not, but the purpose of the ministry of the pastor is to equip who? The saints. It does not say to provide a comfortable environment for seekers. We're not not to be seeker-friendly. That's not the purpose of the church. That that is an er erroneous ecclesiology that has... it, It shows up every generation or so. There's somebody, they phrase it a little differently, they package it a little differently but they try to turn the meeting of the church, the body of Christ, into a place that is comfortable for evangelism. Now, we're to do evangelism, and I always give the gospel whenever I teach, but the purpose of our meeting is to equip believers for the work of the ministry. The purpose of the meeting on Sunday morning is not to provide a comfortable environment for unbelievers so that they can be saved. Now, there's a lot of people that have been saved over the years coming into this congregation uh, because of their spouse or because of a friend or for whatever reason, and they realize that they have never trusted in Jesus Christ for their own eternal life. And they believe in Christ as the promised prophesied uh, uh, Messiah and Savior from the Old Testament who would die on the cross for their sins. And they believe that, and they are at that instant made a new creature in Christ and enter into the church. But that is not our primary mission. You often hear people, they go to this denomination or that denomination, they say, well, I used to be part of that denomination, and I've heard the gospel about 5,981 different ways, and then they repeat them all. But we never get beyond the gospel. Well, that's because that is a denomination that doesn't understand this passage. They have a pastor who's had, hopefully, three or four years of graduate school and training to be a pastor, and he comes to the church, and he leaves the equipping of the saints up to the adult teachers in Sunday school. 
who are not trained, who have not, never been to Bible college or seminary. Now, in larger churches you, and in certain locations, you may have a lot of outstanding, well-trained Sunday school teachers. I know, know that for a fact. Uh, you go to da- Dallas, Texas with Dallas Seminary, you go to any Bible church and nearly every Sunday school teacher is a, is a, either a seminary student, a graduate of, of the seminary, or someone who has uh, sat under somebody for a long time and they're very well trained or they're a seminary professor. One, you know, so you have excellent Sunday school teachers. But in many, many churches in this country, you just have people who've been sitting in the pew long enough to be able to read a Sunday school quarterly and turn it into some kind of a lesson, but they're not trained in the Bible. And they may or may not even be spiritually mature. So all of this takes us back to understanding the Bible says God creates the church, God defines the church, God tells us what the mission of the church is, and Christ gives gifted people to the church who enable those who are members of that congregation, either formally or informally, to be trained and equipped and prepared to do the work of the ministry, not the guy in the pulpit. He's not the minister. According to this, the ministers are y'all. I'm the coach, you're the players, okay? And that's, that's my job. So this passage teaches us about the mission of these gifted leaders and what they're supposed to do for the church. So that brings us to our topic, which is what does the Bible teach about the church? The formal name for this is ecclesiology, from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church. And so this is this, that, that branch of systematic theology which focuses on what the Bible teaches about the church. Now, I'm not doing an intensive, uh, thorough study from uh, granular shaping of the ground under the foundation all the way to the roof and the steeple on ecclesiology, just giving an introduction so that as we get into this, we have a better understanding of what the Scripture says. So today we're going to cover point one. There aren't that many points. Each each has several subsets. What does the word church mean? What When did the church begin? Who is in the church? And what are the two uses of the word church? Actually, there's more than that. There's three or four, but we're going to focus on what most people think of as the two primary uses. So this is just understanding what does the Bible mean when it uses the word church? Well, first of all, the English word church comes from the old English word. There's a Scottish word that relates to this. The German word is, the Scottish word is kirk. The German word is kirken. And those two words come from the, the Greek that we find a couple of times in the New Testament. And that's the word kyriakon or kyriakon. And so the Y there is really a translation of the Greek upsilon, but that's how it's supposed to be translated is as a Y. And it basically means something that belongs to the Lord. It's used two times in the New Testament. It's used in 1 Corinthians 11.20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
It's a genitive. So literally it says the supper of the Lord. So kyrikon is that, that genitival phrase. And in Revelation 1.10, it talks about the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, talking about the first day of the week when they would uh, come together to worship. So that's where our English word come, comes. Number two, we have the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia. An ecclesia is an assembly, a meeting, a congregation, or a church. Those are the ways in which it's translated. Now, it can refer to the assembly of anybody. It can refer to an assembly of people that are uh, going to a music concert. It can refer to an assembly of people that are the like the city council, and and it's referred to. Uh, city council in scripture in, in at least one place. It can refer to a large assembly of people that doesn't have any religious purpose whatsoever. And because many times it referred to just the congregation of Israel as they travel through the wilderness, and it's not necessarily related to worship or anything like of, of that nature. And so that's the basic core meaning of the word. And it is used several different ways in the New Testament. So every time you see the word ecclesia, it doesn't mean the church. When you see the Septuagint, those of you who've been coming on Thursday night or listening on Thursday night, you've learned something about what the Septuagint is. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was done around 200-250 B.C., because the Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, had lost their facility with Hebrew, and they needed to have uh, the, the, their Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, translated into Greek so that they could read it and understand it. And the legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Torah, the Pentateuch. Uh, that's probably not true, but from that, it uh, there may have been 70 rabbis involved in it, but that was the idea, and so it's called the 70, the Septuagint, and so it's referred to and abbreviated as LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. And ecclesia is used a lot of times in the Old Testament, but not for something like the church. It refers to the congregation of Israel when they're going here, going there, traveling through the wilderness and other times, but it is not referring to an entity that is coming together to, to worship the Lord. The word is used 114 times in the New Testament, and in the New Testament it is, um, it's used several different ways that I'm going to get into. It's only used two times in the Gospels, and both are in the Gospel of Matthew. One of them relates to the church. The other one just relates to the assembly, probably referring to the assembly of the synagogue uh, at that particular time. And so this is uh, part of its meaning. We see other uses, for example, in Acts 19.39, where uh, Luke writes, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. This is during the time... I think this is the city manager in Ephesus that is making this statement because there's uh, a lot of uh, disruption has been stirred up because of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so this is part of that. And so it just refers to the local uh, city council. 
In Acts 19.41, then he goes on to say, when he said these things, he dismissed that assembly, which was those who were going to riot and were protesting the Christians in Ephesus. In Acts 7.38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness. So that's referring back to the Old Testament as just simply the congregation of Israel. And then we have another use in Acts 9.31 that refers to the church. Typically, when you study this part of ecclesiology, people will describe that there are two aspects. There's the universal church, and there's the local church. And that's true. There's the universal church, which is made up of all church-age believers, those in, including those in heaven and those on the earth. That is the whole invisible body of Christ. Then you have the local church. But when it talks about a local church, there are different ways in which are different content to that term. For example, in Acts 9.31, we read, Then the churches, but the word in the original Greek is a singular noun, not a plural noun. So it is the church, singular throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So it refers to a regional collection of churches, individual congregations. Other times it's written to a specific individual congregation, the church in Ephesus or the church in in, uh, Galatia. But there's debate because in Ephesus and Galatia, there may have been many house churches. And so there, even there, it's talking, uses the word singular in terms of a group of churches in that city or in that smaller geographical region. And then it also refers to the individual church. So you really have to look at the context to understand exactly what is, what is going on there. Now, another thing that we have to look at in terms of understanding this particular uh, topic. And these are some things to avoid. One of these is that we have to avoid... uh, Let me summarize this, first of all, in terms of three things. Uh, There's the universal church, which is all believers in heaven and on the earth, invisible and visible. There's the visible church, local churches in various areas. They can be... uh, a small number of churches, an individual church, I mean, our, our larger region, or it can just be one particular local, uh, local assembly. Now, another thing to avoid is s- certain references to the church that are not scriptural. And the first of these is that the church is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. That's real important because you go to most churches today and they talk all the time about, you know, we're doing something for the kingdom. And there's no understanding of what that is, and they equate the church to the kingdom. Now, if it's a church that is governed by covenant theology, that is their view of their millennial. They don't believe in a future literal, physical, messianic kingdom on the earth then they have allegorized those passages and spiritualized them so that the church is the kingdom and that it is the invisible kingdom on the earth. And then when Jesus comes back, that just ends history. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
So the Bible teaches there will be a literal, physical kingdom on the earth where Jesus Christ reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And Revelation 21, I mean 20, uh, verses about 1 through 9, describe that beginning period as the millennium the messianic rule of Christ for a thousand years. And that thousand years, in many ways, just describes the length of time that Satan is incarcerated in the abyss. And then he's going to be released, and there's a rebellion, and then you go into what I call phase two of the kingdom uh, into eternity. So we have this word kingdom, and it's used several different ways. One of them is to describe the universal rule of God over all his creation. Often you will read in the Psalms a reference to God as king, and that's exactly what that means because under the Mosaic law, God is the true king of Israel. He is the king of Israel in a theocracy. That's the term meaning God rules. And so that is referring not to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is referring to God in terms of his uh, universal rule over all creation. And more specifically, it would be referring to the theocratic rule of God over Israel. So sometimes the word kingdom can also refer to that kingdom uh, of Israel in the Old Testament. But the way in which it relates to Jesus, when John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Jesus sent out his disciples in the first part of his reign saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and and uh, then his disciples went out preaching the same thing. Jesus preached it, the disciples preached it, John the Baptist preached it, but in Matthew 12, the Pharisees rejected him as the Messiah and said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. From that point on, there's no proclamation of the kingdom anymore. In fact, Jesus starts teaching in parables, and he's te- and that is for the purpose of training the disciples and to cloak the truth from those who've already rejected him. And he doesn't do miracles among the population, whether they're a believer or unbeliever anymore. His miracles are restricted to those who are his followers to confirm his credentials that he is the one he claims to be. So what happens is he comes, it's announced that he will rule and reign, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but because he's rejected, the kingdom is completely postponed, totally. It will not come until the second coming. So we're not in the kingdom. Now, there's another phrase that is used, and that is the phrase of the mystery form of the kingdom. Now, in Matthew 13, we're told that Jesus, that's right after the rejection, Matthew 13, he begins to teach his disciples, and and the text says in the Greek, he began to teach the mysteries of the kingdom. But a lot of translations will put the mystery form of the kingdom. But that's not what it says in the Greek. He's teaching about certain things that haven't been revealed beforehand about the kingdom. And part of what he is revealing is that because it's being postponed, there's going to be an intervening period of time. He doesn't call it the church. He just It's an intervening period of time. 
And these are the characteristics of that intervening period of time. And so Matthew 13 isn't talking about a mystery form of the kingdom. It just talking about previously unrevealed uh, proofs uh, or things about the kingdom. So when did the church begin? Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, And I also say to you that you are Peter. This is after he's asked Peter, well, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, the other disciples said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're uh, Moses, some say this uh, prophet or whatever. And so Jesus looked at Peter and said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is the background for this. And so Jesus says to Peter now, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, what he means by rock isn't, he's not doing it really a play on words in one sense. He's not saying on this little rock. He's not saying he's building it on Peter. He's not saying he's building it on Peter's confession of faith. He's saying he probably pointed to himself because all through the Old Testament, God is called the rock. He's the rock of Israel over and over again. In fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, I think it is, Moses says, our rock will beat your rock. (laughs) So this is another name for God. So Jesus is referring to himself that he's going to build his church on himself. He's the chief cornerstone. But the point is the verb is a future tense verb. He's not saying I am building my church. He says I will build my church in the future. So at this time before the crucifixion, there's no church on the earth. It hasn't started yet. Then we come to Acts 5.11, and we read that at that time, a great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So now we have a church. So sometime between Matthew 16 and Acts 5, the church began. Well, what happened between those two was the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and he descended even right before Jesus ascended to the heavens. The last thing he told the disciples was stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in that same passage in Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 7, he talks about the they haven't yet experienced that which John the Baptist had prophesied, the baptism that Christ would come and he would be the one who would baptize you by the Spirit. So, He says, wait for the Spirit, the Spirit comes, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit descends, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them dividing tongues as a fire, so it appears there's a flame over each one of the 12 disciples that are there. I don't think the 120 are there at this point, I think it's just the 12. Because the, the, at the beginning of Acts 2 and verse 1, when it says, and they were all gathered together in one place, the immediately preceding plural noun in the last verse of chapter 1 is the apostles, not the whole 120. So they're sitting there, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. That refers to a special filling, not what we think of in Ephesians 5.18, And it's related to the descent of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. They're all Jews, the 11 disciples. 
And then Peter's going to preach, and there's going to be 5,000 that are saved on the day of Pentecost, and then he's going to preach again in Acts 4, and there's going to be another 4,000 men that are saved, and so probably all their families, so the church is growing rapidly. But then when we get to Acts 8, uh, Peter, uh, Philip has gone to Samaria. Peter and John then come up to Samaria, and so the apostles hear what's going on when uh, Philip is preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, and they believe. And so the apostles in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to them, and we read in verse 15, who when they had come down, that is Peter and John coming down from Jerusalem to Samaria, they prayed for them, that is the Samaritan believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So see, there's always been this fragmentation between the Samaritans and the Jews. They, they hated each other. The Jews had, a, had a, such a prejudicial view against the Samaritans because they were of a mixed race that they despised them more than any KKK member despised a black person. Okay, that was great prejudice. They were so self-righteous. And what happens now is the Samaritans, under the authority of the Peter and John, who are the apostles from Jerusalem, receive the Holy Spirit, showing that the Samaritans are now included in the church equally with the Jews. That's phenomenal. That's what we learned in Ephesians 2, that in the body of Christ there is no distinction based on language, culture, subculture, ethnicity, skin color, or anything. We're all one in Christ, and that's the standard. So here we see a beginning, because first Jews, then Samaritan believers, and then we hear Paul. Paul is filled with the Spirit, and so he represents you know, these legalistic Jews, the Pharisees, and he's saved, and he gets filled with the Spirit. He becomes part of the body of Christ. And then in Acts 10, Peter goes to Cornelius, and while he is speaking to them and giving them the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. They heard with faith. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to them, and as had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So Jew and Gentile receiving the same thing, and now Peter's there. Where was Peter? Peter was in day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Where was he? In Mary, Peter and John were there. And Peter again. See, Peter pulls it all together. It's all under the authority of the apostles, so they're all having the same salvation going into the same body of Christ. And when he reports on it in Acts 11, he says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. We had the same thing happen. So we're all one in the body of Christ. And it is that baptism by the Holy Spirit that is what unites the church. It is what puts us into the body of Christ and gives us that true eternal unity that truly cannot be broken and it isn't broken other than by the sinful action of believers, but we are positionally one to begin with. This takes us back to what we learned in Ephesians 3, and that is that Paul said in verse 3 that by revelation God made known to me this mystery, this previously un unrevealed truth. What was it? 
and that 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 now there was going to be this new entity, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together. And so he says, uh, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known. What are the other ages? The period of the Gentiles, the age of innocence in the garden, the age of con- dispensation of conscience, the dispensation uh, of, um, of government, the dispensation of the patriarchs, the dispensation of the law, all of that. All those ages, he says, it was not made known to the sons of men. They were ignorant of what God was going to do with the church. As it has now, in this church age, been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Notice the order. If it was prophets and apostles, it would be Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. When it's prophets and apostles, I mean apostles first and a prophet second, it's talking about the New Testament gifts that the Gentiles should be joint heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Remember what he said in chapter 2. For he himself, Christ, is our peace. Who's our? Jew and Gentile. He is our peace, which has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That was the law that separated Jew from Gentile. He, the law was abolished in the flesh. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. That's the first metaphor. One new man, and then in the next verse, he's gonna, it's gonna be one new body. Where ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, black or white, brown, yellow, it's irrelevant. We're all one in the body of Christ that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar and to those who are near. For through him we both, that is every believer in Christ, has access by one spirit to the Father. That's the foundation of the church. This is talking about every believer in Christ. So that's our starting point for understanding and answering the question, what is the church? Next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at the local church and we're going to look at the purpose for the local church with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to come to understand that this is quite the miracle creating Uh, out of nothing, this new entity, the body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile, every ethnicity, every language, every culture, subculture. Uh, Once we trust Christ, we are all united, one in Christ with no distinctions. Father, this this is remarkable. This is our new identity where we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies because we are in Christ. We are his body, the church, and we need to realize that when we look in the mirror, we are a member of the body of Jesus Christ. What a high calling that is. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never clearly understood the gospel, the good news that we can have everlasting life, and it's not because of anything we do. It is all based on what Christ did on the cross. On the cross, he trusts, he paid the penalty for our sins, and all we have to do is trust in him. All we have to do is believe that he died for us, 
and we have eternal life. We are a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Christ came not simply to give life, but to give it abundantly, and that comes from spiritual growth, and that's the reason for the existence of the local church and our ministry. Father, we pray that you would challenge everyone who's listening to not only make sure they have eternal life and have trusted Christ, but are willing to go the distance so that they might experience the abundant life that Christ offers, which only comes through spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.